a meditation on the Passion of Our Lord, delivered by Father Dominique Bourmeau, first put into words and based off of the book titled The Hours of the Passion by Father Jude Mead. This reflection is titled Desertion and Injustice. The Hours of the Passion by Father Mead. After we have seen the introduction of the 12 Hours of the Passion and the first hour, that is, the agony of Jesus in the garden. We are going to see two more hours, the third and the fourth, the hour of desertion, the hour of injustice. So as you can see, I'm skipping the second hour. We'll do that throughout these recordings. I'm skipping the second hour, the hour of wakening, that is when Judas came and the apostles fought to preserve our Lord. We're moving on here to the third hour, 3 a.m. Uh, usually, this hour usually is the hour of solitude, desertion for our Lord. But 3 a.m. also, even in the lighted at the most bright of cities, it's pretty much desert. The poets and the novelists in their writings usually consider 3 a.m. the time for the dark deeds of the evil men. What does sacred scripture tell us? about this moment when Christ was left in the hands of his executioners, of Judas and his rabble of people, and the apostles left him. The disciples, all living, fled, fulfilling the promise, the prophecy of our Lord, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered dispersed. And Christ himself almost wanted, sought that dispersion, that desertion. I am he, let these go their way. The kindness of our Lord seems to leave no such feeling in the hearts of the apostles. Christ has been fettered, he is in shackles, they fled. Fleeing is a physical, visible separation. Before they had left him already, we might say, spiritually, intellectually, there had been an inward severance, so to speak. But at least our Lord was with them physically. Even the agony was not so lonely. They were with our Lord physically. Christ was lonely in a way, and yet he was not alone. Christ was sad and underwent disgust, a mental agony, but he was with them. They were with him. Now, 
even this tiny physical union is even gone. It's desolate, desert. Christ has been abandoned. And our Lord himself had warned it earlier on. All of you will be scandalized in me this night. And Peter had presumptuously boasted and said, well, I would, you know, even if these ones, these other apostles abandon you, I will not abandon you. And I wouldn't even if I should die for your Lord, I'll be with you. So to the apostles, and particularly to Peter, their weakness came as a surprise. The psalm had prophesied it also. I looked for one to grieve with me, and it was none. I sought for one to comfort me, I found no one. In our lives, we experience the same feeling often. How hard for us is it to know ease, to understand the ease with the carelessness with which people leave us. And that's especially hard to swallow, might I say, especially in a time of sorrow and need, and especially when we are abandoned by a bosom friend. What's a real friend? The friend is proved in time of sorrow, precisely. The one who stands fast in affliction in the hour, the third hour of desertion, who has the courage to sacrifice himself for another. That's a friend. The other ones are not worth naming, even. Stories abound in the press. Mothers leave husband and children. Spouses separate and violate God's vows. Children desert their parents. Catholics leave Holy Mother, the Church. Why desertion? Why do they flee? Why do they abandon those who are in need? They have no will, no courage to persevere and sacrifice themselves for those who love them or for those whom they should love. Strange as it may seem, there is yet one who is a hero in the time of desertion one who is faithful, and that's him who was deserted. Others who fled will flee again and again. It may seem as, as if their whole life would be spent in flight, wearisome of sticking to a friend and being serious and, and, and sacrificing themselves for others. And if they are really wearied of their cowardice, basically, they might sooner or later return to their first conqueror. This is the glory of Christ, the men of the hour par excellence. Because when forsaken by all, 
he became the one to whom all men must return in the end at the peril of their own soul. Our Lord suffered it, suffered this desertion, this abandonment, in order to prepare the apostles for the work of saving the world by undermining, of course, their the presumption, I guess, of their strength, of their power, of their ability to, to follow and whatnot, by increasing the spirit of humility, they will be more humble. Peter will learn his lesson of presumption. We never fall into that trap again. There's a lesson we need to learn, my dear friends, here in this meditation of the hour of desertion. Every time I go through a lonely hour, I need to see that it was a gift from God. An increase, precisely, in our charity, in our love for God, in this very hour of desertion, and lean on our Lord, as opposed to on ourselves, on myself, on my friendless friends. And therefore, we can say this prayer, which comes at the end of this book here, at the end of this um, hour of desertion in Mead, ready to you. O Lord Jesus Christ, true shepherd of my soul, struck by your enemies and deserted by your sheep, Give me the will and the strength never to be separated from thee and to walk always in company with thee on earth, that we may dwell together forever in heaven, who livest and reignest world without end. Amen. Sweetheart of Jesus, have mercy on us and on our erring brethren. And we move on to the other hour the hour of injustice. Still night time. The pale man is hurried off into the dead of night for the trial, prison, torture. He's taken by night for fear of the people. Testimony will be brought against him and the deeds he did not do. He is judged guilty even before the trial began. What's the cause of his condemnation? Who is the judge in this judgment, in this unfair, unjust judgment? Intrigue. Wounded pride, hatred of God, jealousy, these are the causes of Christ's condemnation. <clears throat> Who is the judge of Christ? His name is Legion. When was Christ judged yesterday, today, and tomorrow? 
Christ is the man of the hour. Every hour is his triumph. Christ has conquered trials, falsehood, the hatred of God. He has conquered it indeed in the person of Pius VII, condemned by this unjust Napoleon, Bishop Fisher, Cardinal Mizzenti, Thomas Beckett, all the martyrs of Mexico and China. Because you are not of the world, the world hates you. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. Why was our Lord brought before Annas? Annas, father-in-law of the present high priest, Caiaphas, Annas was really the soul of the conspiracy against Christ. Mead here explains that Judas bargained within the sale of Christ at the price of a slave, or the price of a slave. Annas really has no authority, and Christ therefore is silent before him. Annas doesn't care to judge our Lord, he's really mostly curious. He wants to satisfy his curiosity. So when Annas is bringing up some questions, what about you? What about your doctrine? What about your disciples? Our Lord stops him short. I've preached openly. There's nothing hidden about my doctrine, about what I teach, what I taught. And our Lord knew very well that the high priests and their consorts were spying. The agents of Annas had been everywhere. So our Lord basically saying here, I preached openly, is simply to confound the false judges, the false judgment, the presumption that Annas would not know anything about him. Then the guards struck our Lord, an insult, an offense against a prisoner. Our Lord answers, if I've spoken evil, tell me in what I did evil. If well, why do you strike me? There's a moment of silence here, which embarrasses Annas. He realizes there is no reason to do such things, to go on with this. And he just passes on, to, passes on the prisoner to Caiaphas. And we're getting into this second trial, the false trial of Christ, one of the foulest offense to justice, the most miscarried judgment of history. A sacred tribunal with religious and juridical authority is the tool for the crime of deicide the killing of God. There is an appearance indeed of a court 
In reality, it is a conspiracy, an assault of robbers. The death of Christ has already been decided. It needs only to produce witnesses. It's a very one-sided judgment, of course. There is no favorable witnesses to defend Christ. Only false witnesses, only witnesses against him are brought up and they just bear false witness against each other, really. They are self-contradicting. As the psalm says, iniquity has lied unto itself. And therefore Jesus is silent before these false witnesses brought against him. He said, I shall destroy this temple and in three days built it again. Now, our Lord never said that he would destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple and built it in three days. Speaking about his resurrection, his death and resurrection. But the heavy silence of our Lord accused is the best accusation of the falsity of the witnesses and of the judgment. And so, tired, worn out, short of any other means of accusing our Lord, Caiaphas resorts to the last option he's got. I adjure you, an adjuration to heaven, to bring words from our Lord, to testify who he is. In the name of God, I adjure you to tell me whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Caiaphas knows well that he has our Lord in his hands now. If Jesus said no, he would be called a liar for having claimed so often a dignity which was not his. Yeah, I, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. The Lord said it so many times in the past. If Christ says, yes, I am Christ and I am the Son of God, we are going to condemn him for blaspheming the name of God. And of course, our Lord answers, the accused become the judge now. You have said it. And yet you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, upon the clouds, to come to judge all men. You, iniquitous judges here, are judging me as a blasphemer against God. But someday, the last day, you will see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven to judge you. What's the reaction of the Sanhedrin, that religious judging authority, the Supreme Court, of course, of uh, the Jews? He has blasphemed, says Caiaphas. He rents his garments. And here the iniquity descends into hypocrisy. 
they've dared accusing the Son of God of blasphemy against God. God himself is called the blasphemer of God. The Rius Res Sacra, the Romans have sayings indicating that the prisoner, the one accused, is sacred. You don't touch him. You give him the punishment he deserves, but you don't touch him, otherwise you don't act against him. Not so with the Sanhedrin. They spit upon our Lord. They beat him up. They have condemned him to death. He needs to die, but we need to give him a little present before that happens. Often we are amazed at how educated people when they abandon religion and morality, fall very low and adopt beastly behaviors. The events of the Passion are a very significant example of this falling down, falling away. We've seen examples of that in history, the French Revolution, the reprisals of war, Christ died. Why? Christ died because he loved God's law. He respected it and obeyed it. Children need to be taught respect of authority, love of truth and religion, the Ten Commandments, the virtue of justice, giving its one is due. Justice without the divine law, respected, is a farce. <laughs> Through these three hours we've meditated upon so far, of the agony, of desertion, of injustice, we pray that we ourselves may stand firm with Christ's grace, when we go through these desolate hours during our life. Here is a prayer Father Mead brings here at the end of the third hour of injustice. O Lord Jesus Christ, led as a lamb to the slaughter and silent in the face of false accusers and unjust judges, Grant, we beseech thee, that we who follow after thee may know the truth, love the truth, and follow the truth in all meekness and patience, who livest and regnest forever. Amen. So Jesus, be not my judge, but my Saviour. Amen.